Welcome to The Story So Far, a podcast series by the Silk Road Institute that explores a broad range of artistic expression by Muslim artists in Canada through the eyes of the artists themselves. From music to literature, film, design, fashion, and more, we invite you on a journey into the minds and creative practices of some of the most talented and inspiring Muslims creating art in this country today. I'm your host, Tendesai Cromwell. In today's episode of The Story So Far, I chat with veteran video game designer Osama Dorius. Osama is the lead content designer at Blizzard Entertainment and teaches game design at Dawson College. He has over 10 years of experience in the gaming industry and has worked at studios like Warner Brother Games, Ubisoft, Gameloft, and elsewhere. Born in Baghdad, Iraq, Osama's family fled during the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s, eventually settling in Montreal, where he currently resides. In this conversation, Osama gives us an insider look into the gaming industry and his experiences as a Muslim game developer. He also shares how his career has led him to give back to the industry by creating opportunities for greater representation. Let's jump right in. I read that you've started your career in 2007, and since then you've had a very successful career in gaming, and you're currently, um, you have hold many titles, but um, you're a senior partner relations manager at Unity. I'm curious about the life of young Osama that led you to become the man you are today. I don't know how far back you want me to go, but uh, I was born in, in Iraq and we left uh, Iraq when I was about a year and a half. With the, At the time it was just me and my sister and of course my parents uh, because that was the start of the Iraq-Iran War. Uh, I was born in 1979 and the Iraq-Iran War started shortly afterwards. Uh, we event eventually went to the Arab Emirates and we stayed there for a few years until the visa expired. And my parents traveled the world to try to see where we would land next. Um, they visited Canada. Uh, initially, we were supposed to go to Calgary because my dad was a petroleum engineer and that's where he found work. Um, but they had a layover in Montreal and Montreal seemed like a uh, at the time, a better place to raise a Muslim family specifically. It was more multicultural than Calgary. So my parents made the hard decision that they wanted us to move here instead. So when I came to uh, Montreal at five years old, not speaking a word of English or French, it was a challenge. Uh, I had to learn both these languages. I've always been a person who, since very, very young age, who really, like, entertainment resonated with me. I used to watch movies, I used to read comic books, um, and play video games when I was, you know, when I was a little bit older. But comic books is how actually I learned English, because I went to French school, but my English is stronger than my French, because the world of entertainment mostly exists in English. And from a very, very young age, I remember that I was already a game designer. I used to design board games and card games because that's what I had access to. Um, one of my fondest memories is when I was maybe 11 years old, um, I asked my dad to bring home a pizza box, an empty pizza box. And he was confused, but you know, my dad knew I, I did these you know, strange things to him all the time. Like I did these strange things and he couldn't explain them. Um, and he wanted to encourage me to, you know, do whatever it is that I wanted to do. So he brought me home. He went to a pizza place, ordered a pizza for the family, asked for an empty box and brought it home for me confused and asked me what I wanted to do with it. And I said, I wanted to make a board game. Um, and I'm still, I still think it's pretty clever because that was the board game. It was like a pop-up art board game that I made when I was 11 years old, where you, the box is the board. Like the, I used construction paper to, to, you know, make all the spaces and come up with the rules. I had cards and you like, I thought it was extremely clever at the time. I still think it is. 
um, to this day. So that, like moving along, actually, I wanted to be an architect because I always wanted to build things. That's something that I, I, uh, that resonated with me. I kind of changed my mind right before starting in, in college because I learned that, like, I learned that architects don't only do the fun part, <laughs> that the vast majority have to like, you know, design toilets uh, and, you know, like living rooms, not the big buildings that I wanted to make. And I kind of lost interest in it, uh, which was really sad at the time. I, I like, I'm not saying I have regrets because I had a, a great career since and I'm super happy with it. But I uh, still, it was unfortunate that, that I didn't, I chose not to pursue it. So my dad asked me, what is it that I wanted to do? At the time, he stopped being a petroleum engineer and he started be, being a businessman. He started opening stores of whatever he was interested in. So I, I told him I wanted to have a store surrounded by all the things I love. So I wanted to have like a board game store that sold, at the time, movies were sold in video cassettes. So <laughs> <laughs> that sold like movies and, uh, and uh, comic books and video games. And uh, like, that's what I wanted to do. So he said, okay, you know what? I'll partner with you and we'll start a small store and you could, you know, I'll teach you what I know. I said, great, I'm not going to university. He's like, nope, you're still going to university first. So the honest truth is I picked political science as my major simply because I had to pick something. And it was one of the few things, a few things that I was interested in studying, but not working in. I didn't actually have any intentions of working in, in, in the field. Um, and about halfway through university, my dad's businesses failed the, through a, a series of unfortunate events that happened. Um, they didn't work out. He actually went back to Iraq to become a petroleum engineer, uh, believe it or not, after many, many years of, of not doing it, that was, you know, he still knew how to do it. And he went back and did that. Um, but I, my plan was thrown out the window now, and I didn't really have another plan. So after university, I worked as a shipping agent. And uh, I did customs paperwork, which I absolutely hated, but I went to on ships and I met like captains from all over the world, exchanged stories and that part of the job I, I really loved, but it wasn't enough. I really, uh, there was a creative itch that I needed to scratch and it wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't feel fulfilled in that job. So I went back to doing something that I had done as a hobby at the time. When my dad had his stores, I used to make websites for him back when I was 14, 15 years old, 100% self-taught. I bought a book that said, learn how to make websites in 27 days. And I read it over a weekend. And by the end of the weekend, I had a website for one of his stores. And then his friends wanted me to uh, make websites for them. And I started a small you know, side hustle where I would just make websites for my friend's dad's, uh, sorry, my dad's friends and my dad. Uh, and whoever else wanted one. Um, they were not great, but they were okay. And they were definitely worth the price because I was very, very inexpensive. And they worked, they functioned. Like I learned how to use ZenCard and make, you know, shopping carts and all that. Like they were absolutely functional. So when now that I didn't want to be a shipping agent anymore, I went back to that. Uh, I started doing graphic and web design, which taught me JavaScript, which taught me how to you know, make flash, uh, little flash applications, which taught me how to make games. And I went back to making video games now. So after years of making board games and card games, and eventually I was making levels for existing games. Now I was making my own games and I'll, I won't lie to you. They were pretty terrible, especially at the beginning, because I didn't have, like, I, I was hundred percent self-taught just learning how like the mechanics of making the games hard enough, forget about making a good game. That's another layer. Uh, but I was getting better at it. 
And the reason I, I even considered it as a profession, which uh, I hadn't this whole time, I've been making games and I didn't even consider it as a job, is because one of my friends, his name is Ahmed Saad, he was a Palestinian friend who I used to play hockey with, he got a job as a game designer and he, at a company called Gameloft, making mobile games. And he had studied history and his path was interesting too. Like he, he was asked to um, edit a, a game design book uh, that you know, revolved a little bit around history. And then he learned through the process of editing that book, he learned game design and applied for a job and got the job. But when I saw someone else like me go through that process and get that job, it unclicked something in me and I was like, oh, I, this is a path that's available to me. I can do this. All of a sudden, it was an option. So I compiled like all of the games that I worked on, picked the better ones, showed it to him. He helped me over a period of six months build a portfolio. And I applied to every studio I could imagine. And I got one interview and I nailed it. <laughs> and that's how my career started. I don't know. Like It took a long time and a lot of effort because uh, I basically got my first job in the games industry before the first graduates of games schools in Montreal graduated. So that was, a, in my mind, that was the last chance for me to get there without any ed education in the, in the field. Otherwise, m my plan B was, well, I guess I'm gonna go back to school and study this and then you know, work in games afterwards. So in a way I got lucky. In another way, I continued the path of being 100% self-taught uh, throughout m the rest of my career. That was, in, uh, as, that was in 2007, so it's been close to 15 years that I've been uh, working in the industry, mostly as a game designer. My new role, I've, I've held it for three months, but traditionally I'm a career game designer. Um, I've worked at studios like Ubisoft and Warner Brothers, and Gameloft was also my first company, just like my friend Ahmed. Although he had left at the time I got the job, he had already moved on to another company, so we didn't end up working together at that point. We did later on, but that's a different story. I hope. I'm sorry if that was a really long. No, it was comprehensive. There's <laughs> I didn't so know much where to, to work start. with. No, I appreciate that you're taking <laughs> me on the journey, and it's, it was aspirational because you're giving a lot of people who want to transition into to tech to sort of a pathway of just being self-taught and and being committed and having passion. So that's great. I wanted to ask. Um, it would be really great maybe if you can go through some of the companies and even games um, that you've worked on in the past uh, 15 years. Absolutely. So I, I started an industry at a company called Gameloft. They were making mobile games before smartphones were a thing, just to give you an idea. So those like flip phones or the, the ones that have the keypads, uh, the iPhone was only came out, the first real smartphone that allowed you to play games only came out a couple of years after I had already started in the industry. Um, so I made a few of those really like, you know, low fidelity uh, keypad dumb phones as they as we called them later on not at the time at the time we just called them the mobile phones because there were only phones that were out there um then uh, at even still at gameloft i worked on a lot of franchises uh i my personalities i love to be challenged i don't i like to try new things so whenever i was given an option to either continue with the same franchise or change franchises i always change franchises that was just who i was so I worked on uh, Asphalt, the, the Asphalt series, which is a racing game. Uh, I worked on Dungeon Hunter, which is an action RPG. Uh, I worked on Gangstar, which is an open world uh, type game. Uh, I worked on Guitar Rock Tour, which are like rhythm games. 
Um, and the, I worked on about 12 games while I was at Gameloft, uh, almost 12 different franchises. It was very rare that I would stick around. When I thought I, I didn't get it yet, like the, there's still more I could learn, I would stay on the same franchise. But as soon as um, I, I felt that I've learned enough, I move on. Uh, it, w it didn't only make uh, mobile games at the time. I also made a Wii game called Midnight Pool for the Wii, where you know you use motion controls to play Wii. That was actually the first game I, I shipped while I was there. Um, and I worked on a DS game. Actually, Guitar Rock Tour was a DS game for the Nintendo DS, which is a portable console. Um, my uh, next job after that was at a company called GE, where we made in-flight entertainment. I used to call it airplane games, but people would be confused. They thought I would work, be working on flight simulators, but that's not what it... We'd work on the games that you would play when you're on airplanes. <laughs> so you know when you're trying to sleep and someone's poking the back of your seat yeah that, that was my fault that was your fault okay <laughs> that was i'm sorry i'm very sorry <laughs> so same thing i worked on actually the those games were generally smaller because you can imagine it, they had to be bite-sized people didn't want to play for very long periods of time even if they were on long flights they'd rather jump from game to game so i worked on a couple dozen games while i was uh, at uh, ge i was there for a couple of years and um, a lot of them were like franchise games. Like I worked on a lot of Disney games. I worked on um, a Mickey Mouse game. I worked on an Angry Birds game, um, Angry Birds World Tour. I worked on a whole bunch of things like that and some uh, our own properties. Um, my next jump was to Ubisoft where I worked on a uh, AAA game. It was my first AAA game called For Honor. What's AAA mean? It's, it's, a, it's a measure of budget. So basically it means there are hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe even a, a thousand people who are working on the game at the same time. Uh, up to that point, the, the biggest project I had bid on had just over a hundred people, which was uh, Dungeon Hunter, I believe four and five uh, at Gameloft. And this is at Gameloft. Uh, but okay. most of the... Okay, let me just... Yes, okay. that was at Gameloft. At GE, the teams shrunk a lot. We were making smaller games, so we were like teams of five or six, very, very small teams. Uh, but at Gameloft, the, the, the projects grew and grew and grew. I started off on projects of four, four to five people when we were working on the, the flip phones. And then on uh, the Wii, there were about 20 people. And then eventually on the smartphone mobile games, uh, they just got bigger and bigger. Like 100 people was, was common. But they're still, at 100 people, you're still considered double A. Uh, once it reaches, uh, and this is, of course, subjective. There's no real... Uh, numbers people even right now starting to refer to the biggest games in the world like Fortnite and Grand Theft Auto as being quadruple A games uh, to mixed results not everybody agrees but uh, it's just a factor of budget I see. basically how much money uh, yeah okay and so, so that but, was at but, Ubisoft right Ubisoft that's right okay. that's right Ubisoft okay. um, so For Honor was um, a combat game uh, where you picked one of three franchises either Samurai or Vikings um, or Knights and you picked one of those and you, you know, played with your friends uh, or because it was a multiplayer fighting game. That's a, a good way of describing it. It was wildly popular. Uh, I believe it still is to a certain degree, but it's been many, many years since it came out. I think six years at this point or seven years. Um, and it was an amazing experience. And my first experience working on big games. And after that, I went to a small indie company called Minority Media. Um, where our teams were, were about like, tw it was back to being double A. There were about 20 or 30 people uh, 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 per project. Uh, I worked on VR games. So the two games that I worked on when I was there was called Time Machine uh, Gear VR 
and uh, the other room. I worked on a third game that I left before it came out. So, uh, but th that's why I dipped into trip. Sorry, into VR. Interesting. And then after that, it was Warner Brothers, where I was back at AAA, where initially I started off as an economy designer on Gotham Knights, which is the new Batman game that's coming out without Batman. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, where you play the uh, the Robins and Batgirl. And um, that's coming out at the end of this year. And I was initially the economy designer on the project, and eventually I became the lead game designer on the project. And that brings me to... Uh, Unity, where I have a completely different role, where now I help other people make their games. I'm a partner relations manager, so other people use a Unity engine uh, to make games. There, there are a few, um, you know, games don't come out of nowhere. You have to build them on a foundation of something. So engines are like foundations that you can build a game on top of that come with a lot of different code or uh, and features, so you don't have to create everything from scratch. Games are really complicated. Um, and uh, my new role is when we have partners who, you know, get stuck or don't understand anything, I help them out so I can help them make their games. Oh, amazing. Uh, or e either to, like, answer their questions or connect them with other people who are experts in whatever they need. I see. Um, so, like, that's a, a, a transition. Throughout, uh, I've, I've been uh, working in academia about three years after I started in the industry. I worked as a, a level, I, I taught in a level design program. I, I taught game design, but in a level design program. And eventually I, I authored the independent game design program. Uh, and I became the coordinator. I ran the program while teaching in it. That got to be too much about two, three years ago. Because it was like, I was the only coordinator in the school that did it part-time while having a full-time job. Everyone else coordinating was a full-time job. But for me, it was a part-time job. And it got to be too much, I, you know, I getting see. older. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Okay, wow, that's so, very... Uh, Sorry, go on. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, so I stopped being a coordinator, but I still teach in the program. I have a class now where I'm teaching in, in intro to game design. Um, it's my favorite class, so that's the one that I... That, when they asked me if I wanted to keep teaching, I'm like, as long as it's that class. I, I love... Um, welcoming the students into the program and being the first pe person to teach them the foundation of game design. I'm very passionate about that. So all in all, I've been teaching for about 12 years. Amazing. I actually want to get back to that actually later on, uh, now that you mentioned that. Um, I want to go back to your childhood um, because I saw a video where you described that early on um, video games were a safe haven for you, um, unlike other forms of media, because they rarely mentioned your identity as a Muslim at all. But of course, you mentioned that things changed over time. Tell me sort of your early relationship with video games and then how it had to evolve over time after, you know, Muslims became more prominently featured in, in games. So uh, to, to understand what I meant, you have to look at other mediums uh, like movies in the 90s. Uh, Muslims are pretty much the go to uh, villains, right? Almost every other blockbuster action movie it, it was... Um, whether it was terrorists or whether it was just, you know, American going to Muslim countries and somehow still being the good guys when they're the ones who are killing us in our homelands. That was what I grew up with seeing. And of course, I wasn't unique. All Muslims living in the West and probably around the world uh, were subjugated to the same thing. Um, and it wasn't actually, even though it was less common, but it was actually still the same in comic books. Like, I still remember reading a fan... A, a, uh, Fantastic Four comic, which had a villain named Fasad, and it was the fr he was dressed like you know an Arab sheikh or whatever you want to call it, 
Um, and that was the only Muslim character I had seen up to that point in a comic book. And he was a negative stereotype, a really like, you know, bad person. Uh, cartoons were no different. I watched episodes of Transformers that were t t took place in this made-up uh, Arab country. Uh, so, like, video games didn't have any of that. There was, like, even the ones that, that kind of did, didn't do it overtly. Like, there was a, a game where you, uh, called Thunderblade where you played um, as a helicopter shooting bad guys, but you couldn't see them. They were just in tanks. So even though I vaguely knew that it might have been t uh, taking place in the Middle East, it wasn't overt, and that was like the worst offender. Everything else was fantasy in video games. You know, it was just made-up worlds, um, made-up locations. It was a plumber eating mushrooms and getting high or whatever it was. Not real, like, real-world scenarios. So I was able to just, you know, not have to deal with that, not have to feel othered, and feel uh, like vilified or misunderstood really because I knew my Islam was not that like that didn't it's not like I was confused about whether I really should be a bad guy or not I was angry and I was sad that other people saw me that way and saw like us that way when that wasn't the case and of course as the the video games became more big business and there was more money involved and it was more technologically advanced and narratives became more widespread they had they tried different things and one of the things that i i still don't like about the industry uh, it's much better now but it's not as it still wasn't isn't great now is that the industry generally followed the same path as hollywood so we some of the directors that we've had in our games really looked up to Hollywood directors and they would like copy them. And one of the ways they copied them is that we started getting games that were set in, you know, like pro-American military games that vilified Muslims, which was something new to me at the time. And I hated it, especially because oftentimes those are the games that had the big budgets. So those are the games that were fun and played well. And those are the games that my non-Muslim friends wanted to play and that I wanted to play with them. So I kind of had to like bury that side of me and be like, you know what, it's, it's fine. I'll deal with it. Uh, I just, you know, won't think about it again. Same as when we used to go watch movies and just be like, you know what, I don't like this part, but you know, let's just sit through this and enjoy the movie. Um, and initially when I was working in games, I actually had to work on a few games like that, like military shooters who vilified Muslims. And when I was a junior and afraid to lose my, my job, I stayed quiet about it, as, and, but it burned me inside. And as I became more and more experienced and, and felt a little more secure in my position, I started speaking up more and more and saying, no, this is wrong. We should change this and pick my battles. And I'm still proud to say that some of those same franchises that I worked on before, now they don't do that anymore as a rule, as part of the identity of the, uh, of the franchise. Like the, it had a small shift, even after I left the company, it continued and the good things started happening. Uh, but that's actually when I started being an advocate for Muslims in, in games. It's because I started talking about it when I was working at companies and then other people from those companies used to go to other companies um, and would invite me to come talk to them about these topics. So they, you know, they weren't subject matter experts in this. They knew it was wrong because they heard me talk about it, but they didn't know what to say. So they would invite me to do that. Eventually, um, I started applying to talk at different conferences about it. And um, after a few years of this, the Game Developers Conference, which is the biggest video game conference in the world, uh, specifically for game developers, it's the biggest for game developers, which uh, on a good year, before COVID would have like 40,000 game developers in San Francisco, you know, giving talks about the ver a variety of topics. 
um, they asked me to come and give my talk. And uh, that just basically was one of the first uh, pro-Muslim or like, you know, like talks that were widespread within the gaming industry. And what year was this um, in? Curious. 2018. 2018. Not that long ago. Oh, yeah. Okay. Actually, that was my next question. You went right into it. I was going to ask, I was going to say, well, you're now one of the biggest advocates for accurate and nuanced depictions of Muslims in video games. Um, and I was going to ask you directly, like, how have you been combating it, both in the industry, but actually in the design of games? And you've, you've really touched on that. Did you want to add anything else about how you've been um, approaching this with uh, within your industry? Well, it's uh, I, I don't want to pretend, of course, that I'm the only person who did this. My friend Rami Ismail was one of the first people I heard speak about this uh, as well. And there were others, there were many others who, who tried. Um, but it, it was hard because we basically I, I remember pitching to the game developers uh, conference my talk for years and it being rejected for many times until finally they accepted with a condition that I have a mentor who looks over the talk. I realized that it's not that they didn't want me to, to say anything. They were worried about what I was going to say to them. It was just alien and scary. So the way to combat this was to be very open and approachable and to just welcome people to ask their questions, no matter how difficult and not to judge anyone. So like even that presentation, I started by saying, um, I'm not here to like point fingers or shame people. That's not the point. The point is like, I want to be goal oriented. I want things to get better. That's my only, my only goal. So please like ask anything and don't worry, we're not going to judge you. And that to me had a huge impact, had a big change because people were, people are afraid. They're afraid to do the wrong thing. They'd rather do nothing than the wrong thing. You know what I mean? So if you just like explain to them that it's fine, you're going to walk them through it and help them. A lot of people will just, you know, walk with you. They'll help you. Uh, and that's been my experience. Now I, I still get invited to different um, video game studios to give similar talks, sometimes um, to actually do consultation so that I could help them build a game like uh, with Muslim characters without them, you know, of unintentionally offending us. So that's been part of what I do. Of course, it's pro bono because it's something I care about deeply. And I, I, uh, I, I, I would connect people with anyone that they want, like other consultants. But if there's someone who can't afford it, those are the people I focus on the most because I don't want the, them to be left behind, if that makes sense. So then how is your work been received sort of broadly in the industry and, and like what impact has it had on game design? So it's mostly very positive. I've heard from uh, many people, like I'm, I'm not going to necessarily mention the specific games, uh, but there are many people who have me listed as special thanks in the, in the credits of their games because I consulted with them. Uh, mostly it's been extremely positive. There have been situations where that wasn't the case. Um, like there was a game that was announced uh, last year or the year before. Time is really weird. <laughs> um, where it's called Six Days in Fallujah, where it takes place in Iraq. And they're claiming that it's a documentary, but everything about it, it's clearly pro-American uh, propaganda, where they don't mention any of the negative things, like the, the use of white phosphorus as an example, like anything negative about the American soldiers, but they're trying to humanize them and see things from their point of view. And I took huge offense to that. Uh, especially being someone from Iraq, but even if I wasn't, I took huge offense to that just because it's so it's, it's such a wrong way of doing things that um, I encouraged a boycott of the game. 
And that put me on the radar of a bunch of white supremacists who, who, tried to, who started a campaign to try to get me fired uh, from my job at the time as the lead game designer on, on Gotham Knights. Thankfully, I had the support of my studio and my, and my team and they like that wasn't going to happen. I wasn't afraid of that happening, but the harassment was. It, it gets scary when you have mobs and mobs of people who are out out to get you, who are like, uh, who are trying to say that I was trying to stifle freedom of speech or or what have you. When in reality, it was this company. Like boycotting is is a very valid way to show your discontent about something, right? I mean, put your money where where your mouth is, or don't don't put your money if you don't want to. Uh, encourage something. So there's nothing wrong with what I was in, what, what I was saying. And yet, you know, that was the, the, the moment that I had the biggest backlash. It wasn't the only one, of course. It's just the one that was the biggest. It didn't stop me, of course. I'm still talking about that and anything else. Because someone has to, has to, right? You can't stay, you can't let them scare you and, uh, and, and silence you. The, then nothing is going to improve. Um, but yeah, that game is still being made. We didn't really have any uh, impact hmm. impact on it whatsoever. There's still this target audience that's going to buy it and who are going to eat up the narrative. Hmm. Um, but at least other people who initially, like within the industry, who initially didn't have an opinion on it, know that this is not all right. We can't do this, especially because it's it's been not a very long time either since Fallujah. It's not like it's been hundreds of years even then it wouldn't be okay but like it's still fresh there are people who who are many people who are still alive today who were subjugated to like the horrific things in, in, in that time period and you're just going to whitewash the whole situation it's it's despicable it's disgusting um but yeah so wildly like the industry rallied behind me and but rallied behind us i should say because there were many muslims who who took this stance um but you know, the, there's a there are very like the loud demographics who are against it really made our lives very difficult for a period of time before they moved on to whatever they whatever do afterwards. they do next. <laughs> so it does take an incredible amount of courage to to continue to advocate for for change within your industry. Can you describe the current state of um, Muslim representation in games today? I think it's getting better. There's still a long way to go, but it's getting much better. Um, the, some of the milestones that I thought were really incredible that just happened in the last few years, there was a Spider-Man game that came out that had hijabis like in the open world where the Spider-Man can interact with them. He could come down and he'd like, you know, some of them, he tries to give them a hug and they're like, I don't do that. And he respectfully says, okay, I respect your boundaries. Little things like that in animation, like the, the, he's animated. He's like, oh, sorry, sorry. Didn't mean to, to do anything wrong. But just that they existed, that they're there, it, we usually were just, you know, non-existent unless we're negative. So having them be there uh, as extra characters, as NPCs, non-playable characters, that was a huge step. That, that helps normalize us. There was an Avengers game where the main character is Kamala Khan, who is a Muslim of Pakistani descent, which was amazing. And it was the single player campaign of that game was really good. And her depictions were extremely nuanced. Her relationship with her father was beautifully, beautifully executed. And, and uh, even like Iron Man, like a big Marvel character um, talks about like, you know, her like, uh, you know, talks about her being a Muslim in that context, like things like that, which, again, helps to normalize. Um, I was randomly playing a mobile game called uh, Good Pizza, and 
there was just a hijabi that walked in and ordered a pizza and I noticed that there was no pepperoni on the menu. Little details like this, that's where we're at now, right now, where um, that, it's a good step in the right direction where we're being included in, in, uh, in representation. I won't say across the board, but way more than when I started in industry, which was the other way around, which was, was when we were only vilified. There are still games that vilify us, but they're becoming a minority. Um, what's missing, and that that's that we need to still work on. What's missing is we need to be um, telling our own narratives in games. That's that is, if it happens, it happens in really really tiny games, and it's great that that's a, the start. You know, grassroots. Uh, but we're, what we're missing is to get like Muslim. Uh, you know, directors with moderate to big budgets telling Muslim stories. That hasn't happened yet. Well, you know, I actually have a question um, that somewhat relates to this. So, I mean, the question is about the debate in our culture about whether video games can be regarded as art. But I also, it's a question yeah. about the value of video games in our culture. Could you speak to that? And then why you think, you know, having Muslims in those positions is important for our culture, important for this form? Absolutely. I mean, um, the, whether video games are art, uh, to me, there's no debate. They are. Uh, I mean, the, the art is not a, uh, uh, it's, a it's not an on-off state. It's, it's basically a, a spectrum, whether you're more leaning more towards entertainment or leading more towards art. When a, whenever a game um, is created, either it's more about the, the uh, mechanics or it's more about the feelings that you get and whenever it's more about the feelings then you know the art lever is on one direction the same could be tr said of any form of, of of entertainment media so why would video games be an exception because you're able to interact with it i would say that's actually more the, inclined to be art if you could interact with it than the other way around because that's the whole point of a, of a beautiful painting that is art is that it, do, it speaks to you it tells you something that you could put yourself in it in video games you could do that Literally, in many situations, you could actually interact with it. Uh, so to me, the debate whether video games are art is uh, a pretty ridiculous one. Within the industry, there is no debate. Like, we all acknowledge that this is a piece of art. Within academia, there is no debate. It's only some film critics or other people from other mediums who like to, to chime in. Uh, because they see games as they were in the past, which is more targeted towards children. That now you look at the, the vast majority of games, you have to be over 13 to play them. It's not the same landscape as it was before. And yes, some of them are, are juvenile, but I mean, look at blockbuster movies. That's the same could be said of them. Same could be said of comic books. That doesn't mean, like, uh, like the Watchmen comic was considered one of the, the 100 top uh, novels by, uh, by Time magazine. That it is a work of art. It's hard. It's impossible to debate it. If you want a list of games that you cannot argue that they are art, I would gladly give you examples. There are tons and tons of them. So if you're trying to discount a whole medium because of a few examples that seem juvenile or that you can't clearly see the, the cultural value, then you know you're doing yourself a disservice. You're cutting yourself off from a lot of things that are incredibly meaningful. There are games that have made me cry. And if that's not a um, that that is not a, an argument for their their value culturally, then I don't know what is. Mm. Uh, games are wildly influential as well, wildly influential. No, no other medium. Uh, when you speak about any medium uh, and to, to someone else, you'll always say about what happened in that medium. Like this character did this, 
this event happened. But when you speak about games, you, you, it, they're unique because you say, I, you live through this. They have this power to be able to put you in the shoes of people and to live their experiences that other mediums have a harder time doing. So their potential for art, in my opinion, is even stronger than anything else. Their potential to be culturally significant are stronger than anything else. That's a really good point. And, and as you were speaking, I'm thinking also that it's also a commentary on how people see the consumers of video games. People have this idea in their mind of, you know, this young guy locked up in a basement who has no life ambitions playing a video game. And it's just it looks down on the consumers of video games as well, not just about the games themselves, because I guess many people now know that they, there's they've evolved and it's not sort of just for children and they're more sophisticated now with sophisticated storylines and and graphics and and um, all these incredible visual elements that could really make for a credible experience so it, in a way it's just it's, they like look down and be like if if video games are art it's it's like lowbrow art you know so it's interesting that um, it isn't a debate for me. I'm not. I'm not someone who plays video games. <laughs> I, I'm. I'm a little bit interested. In, I'm in into VR a little bit, but I don't do the gaming stuff. I just do more of like the experiential um, mm-hmm. apps. But um, yeah, just as you were talking, that that's what came to mind. And so then, you know, gaming is of course about play at the heart of it, right? Yes. And so tell me the way that you feel that video games enable play in our lives kind of collectively and then once again like the overall value of this form of play how what it brings to our culture actually i wanted to talk about one thing that's a little bit of tangent to that but uh related so in 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 the podcast the in the habibi podcast the podcast that i'm part of uh one thing that we do every ramadan is we have these mini episodes called suhoor bites so they're just five to ten minutes long but they happen every day of ramadan and the the idea is we keep you company while you're eating suhoor um most of the episodes what they are is we interview different muslims from mostly from video games but honestly not only not exclusively there are authors and there are video makers or whatever mostly from entertainment and we ask them either about their favorite ramadan memory or um, you know what Ramadan means to them. You would be surprised how many people mentioned that while, like during Ramadan, while waiting for iftar, one of the, the the fondest memories were playing video games as a family, you know, to pass the time and to just like come together. Um, it was a shocking number of people who do that. So video games are a way to be like that. People are able to uh, live experiences that are intended by the uh, author of the video games. Clearly, that part is uh, hard to debate. Like, there's a lot of philosophy that goes into a lot of the big RPGs about, you know, uh, what does this world mean or how do you have to treat other people or, like, the same kind of themes that you would see in novels because that's where a lot of the inspiration comes from. But also, there are, there's a connection that could happen when you're playing games with people. I know people who have best friends they've never met in real life because they are people who they've been playing video games with online people who are in faraway cities who've been playing games with them online for 10 20 years like world of warcraft guild mates who've who sometimes the first time they've ever met is when they were invited to that person's wedding as an example and they were like okay you know we've been friends for six seven years now we meet in person and and there are other extreme examples of people who got married in, in video games or what have you and whatever you feel about that what's undeniable is that the connection is real and during 
the pandemic especially, then we saw, like I, I personally saw this in my children where initially my, my, my kids would have people over all the time. They, like they used to have their friends over all the time. And all of a sudden in a pandemic, they weren't able to. And now if they want to see their friends, they see them in, in these virtual worlds. That's the only option available to them, right? Especially when school was remote, when they had to go through school, like, you know, go through school on Zoom, right? When they weren't able to go in person. This gave us an avenue to stay connected in a, in, in, in a world that, you know, lost all other options. So, like, it's the... the Video games are are here. Like whether people, <laughs> they're here to stay. They're extremely important. There's so many things that they do well. Uh, of course, it's a medium like any other. So some people can abuse that and and use it negatively, just like anything else, right? There are good books and bad books, good movies and bad movies, good messages and bad messages. It's a medium unlike any uh, other um, because it. I, to be honest, I just think it's more potent in that because you like. Watching a movie together, you can maybe talk about it later. Playing a game together and feeling those themes together and getting those messages together and having that extra level of connection together, uh, that, that's unique. No, no other medium has that. Yeah, and it's, it's, it, as you're saying, it's a far more immersive than in other forms of media in a lot of ways. And so it really underscores the importance and value of having... Um, what you were saying about having Muslims in leadership positions and and being able to be the authors of our own stories in this in this particular um, you know for media format games right absolutely yeah absolutely someone asked recently uh, on social media I don't don't remember which platform someone asked when was the first time you saw yourself represented in a video game uh, specifically video game and um, to me to this day I'm still waiting right for a perfect representation. I don't have that. But um, I remember when video games had the uh, character creation modes, I was able to create myself in a video game. And that was unique. That was probably the first time I saw myself in any kind of media period is when I was able to craft my own stories and create my own character and live and, and make my own decisions. That's powerful in and of itself. Hopefully we could do the other thing but at least that has existed for a real long while now where, you know, we could craft, we can put ourselves in our games. That's, that's been around for a while. Oh, you know what? As you're speaking, I was just thinking. So I have a VR headset at home that I bought sometime last year. And I had created mm-hmm. two separate avatars. One was like who looked like me. They both look like me. One was a hijabi. <laughs> and I was walking around and like, you know, the, you probably had the experience of walking around in social VR when you're interacting with people. And the other one wasn't a hijabi. I like made a deliberate decision to mm-hmm. not be a hijabi in that virtual world because you're actually interacting with real people in real time, walking around the social yes. VR experience. And so mm-hmm. it was what you're saying about the first time, like the you said character creation, um, if that was the first time I've ever felt that I saw myself in this a virtual digital world where I'm just like, it was just, it was kind of mind blowing. And I'm like, I mm-hmm. can assume any identity that I want. I kept mostly myself, but I chose to also deprive myself of my religious identity in certain contexts because mm-hmm. I was afraid of experiencing Islamophobia in a virtual environment, you know? Of course. Um, but it, mm-hmm. I, you know what I mean? I also downplayed my own faith. Like it was something that I chose to do. But, mm-hmm. you know, as we gain more representation and, and get more of a presence, like I won't feel the need or others, you know, who are younger than us won't feel the need to have to sort of downplay our faith 
um, or any Absolutely. other aspect of our identity. So it was really interesting that, you know, what you're saying kind of brought that to mind for me. <laughs> yeah, like video games are a form of escapism as well. Um, and so it's normal to want to sometimes not have to do with all that. Uh, now, let me flip that around. Imagine setting up an avatar with a hijab and having non-Muslims play with that avatar for a change and seeing how Islamophobia affects us. Mm. That, that's the power of video games. They're able to tell these stories and let people feel these things without actually coming from our backgrounds or, or what have you. So that, those are the kind of experiences we need more of to allow other people to see things from our point of view. We don't have enough of those. That's the, yes, exactly. And hopefully the future will bring that. And, and indeed it will. I have one final question for you. Um, what's next for Osama? <laughs> um, actually, uh, for me and for some of the other Muslims in the industry, what we would really like to do is facilitate people from our home countries to get into the business and the craft and the art of making games as much as possible. To, that is, it's, it's still incredibly difficult for someone from, um, you know, like non-Western countries to be able to tell their stories and break in uh, to this, uh, the, this industry. And we want to facilitate that. To me, that's the future. That's what we need to do. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Osama. This is a really great interview. I really appreciate uh, everything you said today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. The Story So Far is a Silk Road Institute production and was funded by the Canada Council for the Arts Digital Now Grant. We acknowledge that the Silk Road Institute operates on the traditional territory of the Ganyankahaga, presently known as Montreal. These are unceded Indigenous lands and a place which has long served as a meeting and exchange among many First Nations, including the Ganyankahaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe. We recognize and respect the Ganyankahaga as the traditional custodians of these lands. The show was produced and researched by Asan Mogul, script writing and editing by Anam Shaw, additional script editing by yours truly, Tendisai Cromwell, the executive producer and creative director is Mohammed Shaheen. Music by Suad Bushnak. Marketing and communications by Nawal Salim. Sound editing and mixing by Mark Knox at New Sound Productions. Graphic design work by Hamza Ali. Special thanks to Silk Road Institute's programs and development manager, Miriam Zaidi. For all of our episodes and to support Silk Road's future programming, visit silkroadinstitute.ca. I'm your host, Tendisai Cromwell. Thanks for listening.